uh, on the stairs on the bottom left-hand corner of the art right oh, next yeah. to the board. That's a little possum. And you know, that's a possum. That's right. Oh, it is a possum. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Holy. <laughs> You're welcome. Well- Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode 308. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Perlman, and I am joined this evening, afternoon, morning, drive to work by the one and only Charles Feather. <coughs> oh, yeah, that's me. Hello, hello. Hello, and the one and only Marco Sanchez. Hello. A little wheezy there, Charles? Uh, I was sucking down my last M&M before the show started, and I didn't actually finish, so I was, like, trying to... <laughs> oh, I thought that was a bit. Okay. It is terrible. <laughs> terrible. Terribly unprofessional. What I'm is done. This? <laughs> is that like a euphemism? I was sucking no, no, down no. the last M M&M? and M. No, no, I've got my wife gave me this bag right. of M M&M, and M's. I, I will. I will tell you. This is this is a crazy thing about. It. I will never eat the last peanut M M&M and M out of a bag. Wait, what? Wait, I will never eat the last peanut M and M out of a bag of peanut M and M. Folks, we have a long show tonight, but I need to know what's going Why? on here. Well, well, okay. There is a there is an exception, but. Have you ever been eating peanut M&M's and you get the bad one? Uh, no. I'm no, not huge into peanut m and so. Same. So I need but, I need to know more. Okay. So occasionally you will get, like, just a peanut M&M that's just rancid. Okay. And you need something to get rid of that rancid taste out of your mouth. Oh, I see where this and is so, going already. Mm. Right. So you just if you if you're eating a little bag of peanut M&Ms and you haven't had the bad one, you just don't eat the last one because because if that last one is a bad one, you have no backup M&M to help wash the taste of the bad M&M out of your mouth. <laughs> it's going to stick with you is what you're saying. I I, it, I got like, it. Yeah. Uh, got yeah, it. it does. So anyway, Speaking of speaking of sticking with you, um, actually, I got no segue for this. No. Um, right. So this episode, we're you know however many minutes in, and we haven't actually talked about the what the episode topic is. But there's a pre-release this weekend. Yay! So we're probably going to be talking about that. What you thought we were going to talk about the Twitter drama from this past weekend? Psh, if you want to talk about that, join our Discord. Yeah, we're. Absolutely, we can talk about that or follow us on the platform formerly known as Twitter.com. Follow us at, at, at JudgeCast. Is that our handle? That at is Judge our Cast? handle. Yeah. At JudgeCast, because I know these things, even though we've, <laughs> you know, 13 years at this point. Anyway, we're going to be doing instead, we're going to be talking about the, I think I said it earlier, did I say the Wilds of Eldraine pre-release? Um, that was last time. Oh, good, that was good. last time because it, right. because this is not the Wilds of Eldrin. No, it's this not. is the Lost Caverns of Double Face cards. <laughs> <laughs> also so. known as Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Yes, but yeah, yes. But and fair. as much as we we love doing release notes episodes, Genuinely. immensely from the bottom of our souls, we love doing these so much. Charles, why do we why do we do these release notes episodes? Well, the bottom line is is we've got a lot of new mechanics happening here. Um, and also, we love you very, very much. But the mechanics, right? We've got new things happening. We've got new cards that are interacting with different cards that we've never seen before. Uh, all of these cards have lots of text. So, so, yeah. so much text. And and there's a <laughs> lot of meat to them. So it's nice to have um, a couple of people 
talk about it a little bit that have hopefully done most of our homework. And we can share that with you in a time frame that allows you to uh, have that knowledge for upcoming limited, sealed, standard, pioneer, modern events, and, and so on down the line. Didn't we just do a release notes episode, though? I swear we just did a release notes episode. It was it was yeah. only... <laughs> you, these these sets just that... come out faster and faster and faster. Well, we skipped one. We didn't do... I don't think... We didn't do Doctor Who or... Uh, Commander Masters. Yeah, we we mm-hmm. well we skipped Doctor Who because Doctor Who was only collector boosters with the cards that were basically found in the. We skipped Doctor Who because yeah, it was infinite in Commander card. sets. Well, yeah, it was almost a full set worth of cards. Actually, yeah. that's wild to me. It was, yeah, yeah, but but you know, decks. after this episode or after this release, we have a whole sixty days before another product comes out. <laughs> Wow. Right? Isn't Actually, that amazing? Is it 90? I think so. Uh, new set <laughs> after this. They just announced the release date was February 9th for... February, oh, February uh, 9th for the, next, for the next major set. For the for the uh, oh. uh, the Manor one. Yeah, the Murders yeah. in the Manor or whatever. Murder on the uh, Orient Express. Well, it'll take place on Ravnica, which means that we get Krenko, which means I'm going to be all aflutter Wait, about that. Mur- murder at Karlov Manor is on Ravnica? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you would think it would be on Innistrad, wouldn't you? Just by the theme. I actually thought that, but it's on Ravnica. Yeah, yeah. We get Krenko. I hate everything about this. We get Krenko. Okay. All right, sure. Hey, Brian, Krenko. did you hear we get Krenko? I... <laughs> no. Do, is Krenko going to be in the set? Uh, is he this still one a mob boss? About tonight, uh, I don't know about that. We're going to find out. Okay. Um, but until then, so, uh, we need to talk about the Lost Caverns of Vixalon, right? Yeah. So just a couple of important legality notes. Uh, the Lost Caverns of Ixalan set will be legal in all formats as of release. Remember, Standard now covers two to three years of sets, not one to two years of sets. So that goes all the way back to Innistrad Midnight Hunt. Um, new Commander cards are legal in Commander Legacy and Vintage. They all have the LCC set symbol in the bottom left-hand corner of the card. Treasure Trove cards, which are, you know, those special, that special sheet of cards, the reprint cards meant to sell packs. Oh, who wrote that? I didn't write that. Somebody I wrote that. <laughs> somebody, somebody edited, somebody edited what I wrote. I wrote that. And, and, special reprint cards yeah, meant and, to milk reprint equity to <laughs> increase corporate profits. All right. But they're legal for playing in limited, but outside of that format, they're only legal in the formats in which they are already legal into play. Makes sense. Yeah, so they're legal where they're legal. But not where they're not legal. Right. Um, And then there are two... You'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Uh, There are two special types of cards uh, with this set that we need to mention. Special guest cards uh, that will only appear in set and collector boosters. We won't talk about any of those tonight, I don't think. Um, They are only Mm -hmm. legal to play in the formats in which they are already legal to play. Hey, I know that song. We we, we can can play them where you can can play them. We can dance to that. Uh, and then the, the last one, there are Jurassic World cards, which are only legal in Commander, Legacy, and Vintage. So no Nedry in your standard Dino decks. You dig? <laughs> nah, uh uh You didn't say the magic word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we get it. We get it. it. We get it. Yep. <laughs> also, that, I love that we is... just had a Ron Burgundy situation where if we type it, apparently Charles will say it. So we'll oh. keep that in mind as we go through these notes. <laughs> 
Good to know. (laughs) Terrible. Y'all are terrible. Okay. So what else do we have here? We also have transforming double-faced cards. So a couple of reminders, because we have had double-faced cards in a lot of standard legal sets over the last few years, and there are different types. So we just want to revisit some of the rules around transforming double-faced cards. Um. There's so many rules about these. We could actually do a whole episode on them by themselves in all likelihood. But for now, we're going to give you the Cliff Notes version. So, each face of a transforming... Cliff? Uh, Cliff? Cliff is uh, your your buddy who always knows your name when you come into the bar. Oh, okay, I thought thanks. it was that big red dog. No, wait. That's Clifford. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, each face of a transforming double face card has its own characteristics. So things like their name, their types, their abilities, all those are unique to each side of a transforming double-faced card. When transforming double-faced permanents are on the battlefield, you only worry about whichever of those two faces is face up. Anything on the other side you can just outright ignore, doesn't exist. Transforming double-faced cards are not the same as modal double-faced cards. The modal ones, you can choose which side you're going to cast or play, depending on what kind of card type it is. Whereas transforming double face cards are cast with the front side face up. That's with the little triangle pointing upwards in the top left corner. And in every other zone, or in every zone other than the battlefield, the front face's characteristics are the only ones that matter. So if you're searching for a creature card, and it happens to be an artifact on the front, but a creature on the back face... Can't search for that card. Front face is the only one that matters. Whereas while on the battlefield, only the face that is up matters when you consider what that permanent is. Mana values of transforming double face cards are whatever value is printed on the front face of the card, regardless of which side is up. So the back face of these transforming double face cards doesn't have a mana value of zero. It has whatever the front face mana value happens to be. The back faces of these transforming double face cards will often have a little dot that is actually a color indicator on the left-hand side of the type line. Now, if there's no indicator, then it doesn't have a color. But because we normally derive color from the mana value in the top right corner, if it doesn't have one of those, we have these little color indicators to let you know what color this card is. And then finally, there are things that can modify how transforming double face cards enter the battlefield. For example, forcing them to enter the battlefield transformed. Now, per the rules, entering transformed means with the back face up, per the CR. So if the card leaves and returns transformed, it will come back with its back face up. Even if its back face was already up when the instruction told it to exile and come back face up. Or come back transformed, rather. There is also an ability in in Estrad that let you cast cards some cards transformed so they can be they can be there is an exception to the whole you know in every zone other than the battlefield only the characteristics of the front face matter mm-hmm. there is uh, i forget what the mechanic's called but there is a mechanic that lets you cast like a card from your graveyard really i don't remember that one yeah. but i believe it oh Isn't is that, that the disturb mechanic uh yeah you may cast disturb you may cast this card from your graveyard transformed for its disturb cost there you go so Disturb yeah. cards allow you to trans or cast them transformed, but the default is front face. 
Uh, and then if a game action forces you to put a non-double face card into the battlefield transformed, nothing happens. It'll just stay in whatever zone it was previously in. Yeah, which is kind of... Uh, it's going to be problematic if it tells you to exile it and then bring it into the battlefield transformed. Because mm-hmm. that whatever zone it was previously in might be exile. Womp, imagine womp. just... Yeah, just imagine me doing the Dr. Evil pinky thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you want to do you want to keep going with craft or do you want me to Uh, sure, I can go with craft. This one is actually uh really intriguing to me. So, one of the mechanics in Lost Caverns of Ixalan is called craft. For all of you who enjoy games that have craft in them, vis-a-vis Minecraft, this is trying to capture that kind of vibe. Uh, where you can create something from individual components. Uh, I mention this because flavor can help make this a little easier to digest as opposed to just reading through the wall of rules text that will be on some of these cards. So just like Adobo, makes it a little easier to go down. Uh, So in this one, craft is an activated ability that has a mana part and a materials part to its cost. Craft is written as craft with materials mana now this means if you pay some amount of mana exile this permanent and exile materials from either among permanents you control and or cards in your graveyard and then return this card to the battlefield transformed under its owner's control activate only as a sorcery now there's a few different yeah. ways that this is laid oh, out. It's in not it's not just cards in your graveyard, it's permanent cards in your graveyard. Yes, thank you. Among permanent okay. cards in your graveyard. So in this instance, in this set I believe we have craft with artifact, which would require you to pay the mana cost and exile an artifact from the battlefield among permanents you control or from your graveyard. We have craft with creature. We have craft with cave which is a land subtype new to Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Uh, craft with one or more. Craft with four or more non-lands with activated abilities. And apparently craft with my ever-decreasing will to live because that's that's weird. But we're going to get to that. Don't worry. We're going to yeah. clear this up for everybody. Now, if that's a, a lot of crafts. That's a lot of crafting. And that's, should have, like, that's the unique Craft with this. macaroni duck. Ooh, macaroni yeah. crafting? I require macaroni yeah. pictures? Craft Anybody? with mac and cheese. <laughs> Thank you for getting there. I was, it was sitting in my head. I, I knew it had to happen. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Uh, Hands down, if best you mac do and that, cheese. If you do that, uh, your deck box has to be blue. Yeah, I concur. Yeah. Yeah. The blue box. Yep. So, now if a back face of a crafted card refers to cards, quote, used to craft it, That's referencing cards that were exiled as a part of the cost of crafting the card. Now, those cards referenced as used to craft it only remain a reference point while they are exiled, and this permanent is on the battlefield. Now, this holds true even if the controller of the crafted object changes, or if characteristics of the cards change, like through copy effects or whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Now, if the materials that are required in the crafting cost need multiple objects... You may mix and match whether they're coming from your battlefield or your graveyard. Could be one from the battlefield, one from the graveyard, all battlefield, all graveyard, mix and match. It's fine. 
they don't have to all be in the same zone in order for you to use them as materials for crafting. You may exile tokens as a part of the material cost. However, because state-based actions, and if you remember our uh, episode recently, uh, because state-based actions will make those tokens go poof if they are not on the battlefield, uh, they won't stay in exile and therefore can't be found if the crafted card tries to refer back to your materials that you used to craft. That material is just gone. Uh, this also holds for any exiled cards used to craft that are later removed from exile for some reason. Think Eldrazi processors or something ridiculous like that. And of course, as we mentioned before, if you try to transform a card that isn't a transforming double-faced card, then it won't transform. But for stuff like crafting, you do exile, then return it to the battlefield transformed. So it's not that the craft won't do anything. It will, right up until the point that you make some very sad noises and regret all of your choices. And womp, ask your womp. opponent if you can take it back. Like so, if you if you make a copy, yeah. If so, if you make a copy of a transforming double face card and then craft with it, yep. Boop. Sad things happen. <clears throat> Sad prices. Yeah, right. A, music plays. Bum, that's bum, a rough thing bum. to discover. <laughs> oh, All right. Back to the segues. Love it. Yeah. Absolutely. Back to the segues. All right. It's only fitting that I am talking about discover with the card walk with the ancestors. Um, <laughs> for four and a green. Walk with the Ancestors is a sorcery that says, return up to one target permanent card from your graveyard to your hand, discover four. All right. So we'll re- we'll start off with the reminder text for discover. It <laughs> says, exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a non-land card with a mana value four or less. That's where the four in discover four comes from. Um Four or less. Cast it without paying its mana cost or put it into your hand. Put the rest of the cards on the bottom of your library in a random order. This is basically just a tweaked and improved version of Cascade. You know, because Cascade wasn't already super powerful. (laughs) Um, So Discover In, so in this case Discover 4, but Discover In means exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a non-land card with mana value in or less. That card is the Discovered card. Okay, you may cast that card without paying its mana cost if the resulting spell's mana value is less than or equal to N. Okay, if you don't cast it, put that card into your hand. Put the remaining exile cards on the bottom of your library in any order. Now, it's kind of weird because we just, reading that all out there, I said exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a non-land card with mana value N or less. That's the discovered card. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost if the resulting spell's mana value is less than or equal to N. Well, wait a second. Didn't didn't I find a card with the mana value being N or less? <laughs> Why are you specifying that extra sentence in there? And the reason is modal double phase cards. And the reason is split cards. And the reason is uh, adventure cards. Okay, so a spell's mana value, let's start with a spell's mana value, is derived from its mana cost. You're going to ignore all the alternate costs, um, cost increases, additional cost, like if there's Thalia's out there, anything like that. Uh, you are looking at the spell's mana value. All right. When you discover, 
you are going to exile cards. Okay? The only optional part is whether you cast the exile card or put it in your hand. Okay? You don't get to say, like, eh, I'm not gonna discover. Uh, All the exiled cards are exiled face up. All players get to see them. Standard disclaimers, if you cast a card uh, without paying its mana cost, you can't pay any of the alternative costs, but you can pay additional costs. Uh, Standard clause about if discovered card has X in its mana cost, X will be zero. If the spell has any mandatory costs, like you must sacrifice a creature when you cast this, those those have got to be paid. You got to pay that, bro. Got to pay the cheese tax. Um, If you can't cast... Yeah, so... Generally, it says, like, you flip over the card with four mana value, four or less, and you can either cast it or put it in your hand. If you can't cast it for any reason, it's going in your hand, okay? This could happen if there's no legal targets for the spell, something like that. You you know, you just, you discover into a counter spell or a combat trick, womp womp. Some spells or abilities that allow you to discover may require targets, like our Walk with the Ancestors. Return up to one target permanent card from your graveyard to your hand. Funny that, if you target, it says up to one, so you can do zero or one. If I target a card in my graveyard, and then Charles exiles that card, my Walk with the Ancestors is going to be countered. Because it has a single target, and that target's gone. But... If I had chosen zero target permanent cards from my graveyard to the hand, because it says up to one, then I would just get to discover four. And Charles can't counterspell it. Because we all know how much Charles loves is a blue player. Loves counterspells. Yes. Yeah, yeah. you're a blue player <laughs> at heart. Oh. Okay. I heard him twitching. <laughs> if you discover an adventurer card. Okay, well, actually, let's talk about split cards. Just a reminder, the mana value of split cards are the combined mana cost of both halves. So if you if the discover allows you to cast a split card, you may cast either half so long as the mana value is less than or equal to the total discover value, but not both halves. So it's really, really unlikely for you to discover and hit a split card and not be able to cast either half, okay? Because you're discovering... N based on the combined mana costs of the two halves. So, in theory, you should be able to cast one half or the other. Alright. If you discover into an adventure card, a split card, a modal double-face card, we're using the front of the card for discover N. You know, the main card, the the creature, if it's it's an adventure card, the the combined values, if it's split, the front, if it's a double-face card... But you might be able to cast uh, that card with either set of characteristics, depending on the discover value. Okay, so if you discover, um, for example, you can discover two for an aquatic alchemist. Great, that would be allowed. Uh, What's this note? This fuse cards. Uh, No, you can't because fuse, you have to be able to cast from your hand. Mm hmm. So when you are discovering, you are not casting a card from your hand. Okay. All right. Okay. I knew that there was something about split cards that was driving me crazy, and I couldn't remember what it was. So sorry about that. Okay. No, that's all good. Um, Okay. So uh, Aquatic Alchemist, you discover for two. You hit uh, Aquatic Alchemist. You you would be able to do that. Um, However, 
Uh, our aquatic alchemist has an adventure of Bubble Up. Bubble Up? Bubble Up costs two and a blue. Ah, yes. Bubble Up costs three mana total. And I discovered for two. So I can't get me a Bubble Up. Fixes a lot of wonky things with Cascade. Yeah. All right. It it does. Oh, okay. That's what we needed, a better Cascade. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, the big, the big, one of the one of the big fusses with uh, with Cascade was well. For, first off, it was always less than the mana value of this spell, so it gives them another knob to tweak. Also, uh, one of the issues with Cascade was if you didn't like the card you hit, you kind of just had to let it go. You could Cascade and whiff essentially, whereas you cannot whiff with Discover. Does Discover offer you cash back? That's what I want to know. Uh, That's what I want Yes, know. surprisingly, awesome. it does. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Judge Cass right. looking for sponsorships. Yes. Always. Enough of this descent into madness. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about next is a new ability word, Descend N, or Fathomless Descent, and a new mechanic, Descended. Uh, we have a happy little gabo to light the way for us. Stalactite Stalker for one and a black is a 1-1 one, one, uh, goblin rogue creature. Uh, it has menace and it has the following words, which is rather interesting. It says, at the beginning of your end step, if you descended this turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on Stalactite Stalker. And then it has the reminder text, you descended if a permanent card was put into your graveyard from anywhere. So it's got some other, another ability, but, but that's really the relevant text and what we're going to talk about here. Some cards will refer to a player that descended this turn. That reference is specifically for if a permanent card was sent into that player's graveyard from anywhere during the current turn. Some cards will reference the number of times descended in the current turn. Those cards want to know how many cards went to the graveyard from anywhere. So if you self-mill four cards, that that would count. Yeah, so, so that type of ability might be helpful in those types of decks. For both of the following examples... Descendant only counts cards that went to the graveyard. So if cards get exiled from, I think it meant from both of the following examples. Yep. Uh, it only counts cards that went to the graveyard. If cards get exiled from the graveyard later in the turn or returned to the hand, they do still count. So they don't have to be there and counted at the time. They just have to have gone. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tokens do not count as they are not cards. Sad face. Um, and, and this has been Even talked about. Even if it's about. a token copy of a card. Yeah, yeah. It's it's still a token, right? Um, a permanent is an artifact, creature, planeswalker, battle, enchantment, or land. Uh, a number of cards have the text at the beginning of your end step if you descended this turn. Those cards do not have to be in your control when you descended. Uh, so it can happen like in your first main phase and then the second main phase, you can play the card that has this text on it and it'll still see it. So when it checks the end step, the card from the first main phase will count towards the card having descended that turn. Uh, and abilities that begin with at the beginning of your end step, uh, if you descended this turn, will trigger only once during your end step. If you descended multiple times, it only cares that you descended, not that you did so. Multiple times, you know, so if you descend 15 times, good on you for losing all of your creatures and lands and, <laughs> uh, you know, battles and everything, uh, but it's not helping you any. Uh, if a card descends during the end step, 
this trigger will not see that happening. And there's some note here about intervening if clause. Yeah. What, what's that? They're about? all intervening if clauses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the beginning so of your checking step, again. Yeah. if you descended this turn, yeah, they're all, all of the descendants are, uh, or at least all the ones that I noticed are intervening if clauses. That's wild. Cool. And then we and then we have descend n, uh, where n is a number, and we have uh, whale of the forgotten for blue and a black. It's a sorcery that has descend eight as an example, and that states: choose one. If there are eight or more permanents in your graveyard as you cast the spell, choose one or more instead. Uh, so it's a modal card where you get to make choices and descend eight. If you have eight cards in your graveyard, you can do um, something extra. So choices there are return target permanent to its owner's hand or target opponent discards a card or look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and the rest in your graveyard. So for fathomless descent, which is, uh, I guess another name for this and descent are two different ability words, uh, descend and descent are different. Thankfully, they're both ability words and have no meaning, <laughs> Which is, you know, we're all thankful for that, that they have no meaning. Isn't that sad? Just a little bit. <laughs> cards with the ability descend N. Care if you have at least N cards in your graveyard. Cards with the keyword fathomless descent. Care about how many cards are in the graveyard. Occasionally a descent ability will have an intervening if. I'm sure we'll review the skin in a card at some point in time tonight. But remember, the ability is checked when it goes back on the stack and checked again. It is checked when it goes on the stack and checked again to see if it's still true as it resolves. Exciting stuff. Lots of stuff happening here with Descend. Plenty to explore. That's yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a good thing, too. And to that end, prepare for, and again, I'm going to remind all of our loyal listeners who probably are tuning in just for this, but there will be many bad segues in this episode. So enjoy. Uh, well, and many, we... many terrible pronunciations of card names. Also, we'll yes. We'll try. We'll try. We will. Uh, to that end, let's go and explore some returning mechanics. In this case, Explore is back. Uh, so, in this instance, let's look at a card like Defossilize. For four and a black, it is a sorcery that says, Return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature explores... Then it explores again. And it has some helpful reminder text here saying, Reveal the top card of your library. Put that card into your hand if it is a land. Otherwise, put a plus one plus one counter on that creature. Then put the card back or put it into your graveyard. And in this instance, you would then repeat this process. So, when something explores, the controller reveals the top card of their library. And you check if it is a land card goes right into your hand. Otherwise, any other kind of card, they put a plus one, plus one counter on the creature that explored. And then you can make a choice to either leave the card on top of your library or move it to the graveyard. Once an explorability starts to resolve, no player may take any actions until it's completed. So, for example, your creature or your opponent can't remove the creature once they see what card has been revealed or before it would get a counter. It's all part of the same explorability, and once it's resolving, everything happens, including gaining any counters. Now, if no card is revealed, because you happen to have an empty library, the exploring creature will just get a counter. 
because you did not reveal a hand, uh, a land and put it into your hand. Now, in this instance with explore, if a spell or ability instructs you a specific creature to explore, um, but it left the battlefield, that creature still explores. So if you reveal a non-land card, the counter doesn't get placed on anything, but you still can, if you want, put the card into the graveyard. Any effects that trigger whenever a creature explores do still happen. So sit on that for a minute. A creature can no longer be on the battlefield when the explorer ability resolves, but it is still considered to have explored for the purpose of whenever a creature explores triggers. But of course, we're going to add some more twists into this. If the ability is something like when, for example, Miner's Guidewing dies, target creature you control explores, and you target a creature, and the creature is removed before the ability ability resolves, then you don't actually explore because in that instance, that triggered ability is being countered because there is no legal target for it anymore. Yeah. Everybody following along with that? Ain't that just weird? Fine and dandy. Uh, But this can come up with a few new mechanics, one that we'll find in just a minute, but a couple notes on this before we finish up. Um, Some spells or abilities will allow a creature to explore multiple times in a row, like Defossilize. Uh, If you reveal a non-land card and leave it on top of the library and then explore again, the same card is going to be revealed. In the rare instances that non-creature permanents explore, that's okay. Same thing happens. For example, let's say a creature card that was returned by Defossilize somehow is not a creature once it's on the battlefield for some reason. That permanent can still explore. So you're going to take all the same actions. You may even end up putting a plus one, plus one counter on that permanent. Um... Just remember that if some effects target a creature specifically, and those effects would require a legal target to resolve to have it explore, it still needs to meet the legality for that target. Clear as mud? Yeah. Yeah. Glad you you mapped that out for us. (laughs) Um, Bingo, bango. Bingo, bango. All right, let's talk about map tokens, which is... Okay, sure. I like it. It's fine. It's fine. You know, reading a map is a skill that is quickly dwindling with all the GPS stuff that's out there now. (laughs) You know, just being able to, like, get a map book and look up the street in the back and then find the square on the grid. Atlas. Anywho. Atlas is the (laughs) word we're looking for there. God, we're showing our age. We are. (laughs) Sentinel of the Nameless City is two to green for a 3-4 Merfolk Warrior Scout with Vigilance, uh, also with the ability, whenever Sentinel of the Nameless City enters the battlefield or attacks, create a map token. So, okay, let's just think about this for a second. We've got, you know, clue tokens, we've got food tokens, you know, we've got treasure... Hmm, in a set that's got a bunch of stuff that explores, what would a map token be? Oh, right, a map token explores. But now here's one of the things. 
as uh, Marcos just went over, creatures explore. Players don't explore. You, the player, you're not exploring. A creature is. So the map token is an artifact, token artifact with the ability one and tap. Sacrifice this artifact, as you do. Target creature you control explores. Activate only as a sorcery. Okay. These these map tokens are predefined types. Uh, They have a subtype of map. And they have to target which means if the creature gets removed, the ability, its only target hasn't happened, so that ability is going to get countered. Or, or sorry, failed to resolve. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's about... That, that's, that's pretty fun. final. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. So, so we have a new mechanic called Finality Counters, or Finality Counters. And and it's uh, best demonstrated on this wonderful card, Intrepid Paleontologist, for one and a green. It is a 2-2 creature human druid. Has the following abilities. Tap, you can add one mana of any color. So mana dork. Uh, two and a colon. Uh, exile target creature from a graveyard. Sure, sure. Neat. Okay. And then it also has the ability, you may cast dinosaur Creature spells from among cards you own exiled with Intrepid Paleontologist. If you cast a spell this way, that creature enters the battlefield with a finality counter on it. If a creature with a finality counter on it would die, exile it instead. So, flavorfully, it's not coming back. A few notes on finality counters. Uh, They work on any permanent, not just creatures. So, if a permanent with a finality counter would be sent to the graveyard, it is exiled instead uh, so if you know you got rid of somebody's land or or uh, an artifact it would be exiled that that keyword instead does mean that this is a replacement effect just like uh, rest in peace would or, or uh, a more flexible unearth finality counters don't stop permanents from going to zones other than graveyards so if a permanent would get bounced to a player's hand that would happen normally um, it's a replacement for going to graveyard not for other things that happen, right? Yeah. If you remember, like, Unearth said, uh, if this creature um, would leave the battlefield, exile it instead of putting it anywhere else. So if it got bounced to the hand, it would get exiled instead. If it went to the graveyard, it would get exiled instead. This is just goes... uh, Graveyard and... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Finality counters aren't keyword counters. So they also don't actually grant abilities to the cards that they are on. So if a permanent would lose all abilities, but it still had the finality counter on it, when it would be sent to the graveyard, it will still go to exile. Uh, The finality counter is not disabled by something that would remove the abilities from the permanent. Uh, Multiple finality counters are redundant, but still very cool. And final final. (laughs) Marcus, it's... it's... (laughs) Right. It's sort of like, do you like like them? Do you just like them, or do you like like it, them? Yeah. Is, <laughs> is it final, or is it final final? It was the multiple death touch count, death touch counter type deal, you know? Like, how many times can you kill something? I don't know. Um, Marcus has a, a comment here about um, Ozolith. Yes. So, whenever we're talking counters, the Ozolith is always going to be involved. And this is just a friendly reminder, a reminder to everyone on how the Ozolith works. The Ozolith checks what type of counters were on a creature when it dies, 
and then just puts that many counters onto the Ozolith. So, like, for example, it doesn't remove that finality counter from the creature trying to go into wherever it wants to go and just put it onto the Ozolith. It actually checks what was on it when it left and then just adds it onto the Ozolith. So uh, it will still have that counter when it attempts to die and then ends up going to exile. So hold on. So with with the Ozolith, if I have a creature with a finality counter and it dies, the Ozolith is going to get that finality counter. And then if I if someone disenchants that Ozolith because it has yeah. a finality counter on it, it's going to get exiled. <laughs> yes, yes, it will. Uh, Love it. The Ozolith giveth and the Ozolith taketh away. <laughs> okay, fair. Nice. Uh, so, another returning card type uh, that we actually discussed last release note episodes is the Restless Lands. So, we now have uh, another cycle of creature lands in the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. These are the Restless Lands. For example, Restless Anchorage, which would enter the battlefield tapped. You can tap for a white or a blue mana, and you can pay the ability of one white and blue until end of turn, Restless Anchorage becomes a 2-3 white and blue bird creature with flying. It's still a land. And then it has another ability underneath that that says, Whenever Restless Anchorage attacks, create a map token. Pretty cool. Now, we're going to remind you the same as last time. If one of the lands would become a creature because of an effect other than its own animation ability, uh, like you just used a Nissa to make it a creature and attacked with it, uh, that will... That last ability of whenever this land attacks will still happen. It doesn't have to be from the animation ability being activated. Uh, Also, these lands can still have summoning sickness. So once you play this land, if you were somehow able to untap it and wanted to attack with it right away, you can activate it, you can make it a creature, and then you can make some sad noises again because you forgot it was summoning sick. Uh, Also of note, while it's a creature at that point, it will be a creature that is summoning sick and therefore would not be able to tap to use its mana abilities. So keep that in mind as well. And now that's the final of the mechanics and stuff. Yes. How do we not leave finality counters to last? I don't don't know. I, I blame wizards. Yeah, that's. I fair. mean, that's that's a that's a safe thing. To <laughs> I just do. I just take it take it from. So so really? speaking speaking of, I, I don't want to actually blame wizards for this, but it would be really cool if wizards would offer pronunciation guides uh, to the masses for um, worlds that they're exploring that have unique and uh, interesting names. Um, in this case, however, uh, we want to point out that as we work through tonight's episode and we talk about these different cards. Someone was kind enough on Twitter to put together a pronunciation guide to help us on our way a little bit. So we want to give a brief shout out to at Logan A. Dixon one. That's the number one who put together this pronunciation guide. And uh, by all accounting, some uh, number of people looked at it and it seems to be both reasonably complete and fairly well done. So thank you, Logan, for doing that. And we uh, we're going to be using it tonight as we move forward. All right, so the first card that we're going to talk about is going to be, let me check the handy-dandy pronunciation guide. Nope, this is Abuelo's Awakening. Now, Abuelo's like Spanish for like aunt or uncle or something, right? 
Grandfather. Or am I just making that up? Grandfather? All right. So Abuelo's Awakening is X, three, and a white for a sorcery that says return target artifact or non-aura enchantment card from your graveyard to the battlefield with X additional plus one plus one counters on it. It's a 1-1 one, one spirit creature with flying in addition to its other types. All right. <clears throat> the way this card is worded, it the returned creature will always have a base power and toughness, even if the creature that you're bringing back is some type of clone. Because it's entering the battlefield with the with the X additional counter with the additional counters on it, and then we're saying ah, it's a one one. Okay. So if it if compare that with the wording of something like uh the scarab god, uh like if it's making a copy, it's it's what is it? It's making a copy of a Yep, it uh, reads a to- target it's- creature card from a graveyard, create a token yep. that's a copy of it, except it's a four four black zombie. Right. So what's happening is is you're creating a copy of that card as a four four, and then the copy effect will copy whatever and it'll overwrite that power and toughness. In this particular case, though, you're taking an actual card, you're putting it on the uh, onto the battlefield. Okay, the copy of uh, the copy effects happening, and then we're saying it's a one one spirit with flying in addition to its other types. <sighs> All right. If the artifact returned, because it said target artifact or non aura enchantment card, because uh, you can actually there are certain targets that uh, sorry artifacts that can copy. Um, th- uh, you know, there's artifact creatures, uh, clone effects, and stuff like that. But anyway, if the artifact returned is an equipment, you just made a really cool creature. You just made your equipment dog or whatever. But unless it's got reconfigure, it's not going to be able to attach to anything. Or I guess your equipment, uh, your equipment spirit. If you return a vehicle to the battlefield this way, that's the artifact you bring back. The vehicle, the vehicle creature that you've got, your spirit car, your spirit, your <laughs> spirit motorcycle, is going to have a base power and toughness of one one. Crewing it doesn't like it. it crewing kind of uncovers the base power and toughness. It doesn't set it. Okay. In, in in just like colloquial terms. So it's base power and toughness is 1-1. One, one. Crewing it isn't going to make it a 4-4 four, four or a 5-5 five, five or a whatever suddenly. So there is Abuelo's Awakening. Whose turn? I would play a chicken yours. for who goes next. <laughs> <laughs> I think you lost that one, Charles. So all you. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. So, oh wait, oh because Charles did the pronunciations, you're counting that as a thing. I don't know. I don't know what are we counting as a thing. Um, we we should be more adaptive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, adaptive gem guard for three and a white is a three three artifact creature gnome that has tap two untapped artifacts and or creatures you control. Put a plus one plus one counter on adaptive gem guard. Activate only as a sorcery. So the question here is, is can you tap Adaptive Gem Guard for its own ability the turn that it enters the battlefield? And the answer is no. No? Is it? Let me think. Um, tattoo, untapped, artifact, and creatures. Well, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's do that. Yeah, that sounds oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> like how we, we went from, from no, uncertain no, no, to, to super wait, certain. wait, wait. Oh, yes. Yes, you can do yeah. that. Uh, because it's not a cost of an activated ability um, among, oh, well, 
No, it is it is a cost of an actor. Yeah, yeah. but it's it doesn't not have a, a tap symbol. Not, it doesn't have a tap symbol. Is what we're looking for here. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, and this feature comes up a lot on cards in the set. Like, there's a shocking amount of tap and untapped something or other, and this just works for them all. Brilliant. Yep. So, so let's just let's just be clear. Um, you cannot uh, just because a creature entered the battlefield this turn doesn't mean means it can't be tapped to pay for activated abilities. What that means is it can't attack and it can't use abilities with the tap symbol. Yes. This does not have the tap symbol, so you can use it. All right. That was Brian, first among equals. And speaking of, we also have Akal Pakal, first among equals. Not Akal Pakal. Not Akal Pakal. Akal Pakal. Akpak. Akpak if you're nasty. Why not? Um... (laughs) For two and a blue, this is a legendary creature, human advisor, uh, and it has a base power and toughness of one five. And it has a handy ability of, at the beginning of each player's end step, if an artifact entered the battlefield under your control this turn, look at the top two cards of your library. Put one of them into your hand and the other into your graveyard. So for this, the only thing we really want to highlight is if you only have one card left in your library, you will just put it into your hand. Note that this is not drawing the card, so it would not cause any other issues beyond that. A call per call is their is their government name. <laughs> Act back on the streets. Oh my god! Uh, all right. So there's no pronunciation guide for this one, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna just yeah. Um, some of these Amalia. are just Spanish names, which I love. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So we're gonna try Amalia Benavides. Aguirre? Aguirre. Aguirre? Yeah. Aguirre? Yeah, you okay. got to roll those R's when it's a double R, right? Yeah. You got to roll those R's. F- fat tongue doesn't roll. Uh, <laughs> is uh, Okay, so so ABA, uh, <laughs> Amalia here, is a black and a white legendary creature vampire scout 2-2 with ward pay three life. Whenever you gain life, Amalia explores, then destroy all other creatures if its power is exactly 20. Okay. Yeah. What? So, it's a reminder that while combat damage to a player, if you deal combat damage to a player with like five or six creatures, that's all considered a single damaging event. Okay. However, if those five creatures have lifelink... Even though it's one damaging event, it's going to be five separate life gain events, which is going to, for Amalia here, is going to be five explore triggers. Okay, so after each, so when the ability resolves, uh, you're going to explore. We're going to check the power and toughness. If it's not Exaxes, we don't nuke everything. We only nuke everything if it's Exaxes. Now... Let's say that Amalia somehow has wait, twenty wait. power. If it's not Exaxes, we don't nuke everything. Don't don't we want it? Isn't nuking something the whole point of it? So that you 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 don't have to worry about Exaxes. We're just going to wipe it all out. Well, I'm saying you got to have exactly twenty, <laughs> not twenty one or more, or twenty or more, okay. or anything like that. Okay. Does, did I did I double negative wrong? No, it's just the the use of nuking in, in Xaxes. I I just find it humorous. 
Oh, because nukes not are not as precise. Not, not as precise. Not exact. <laughs> Fair. Okay, so now let's say Amalia somehow has 20 power, maybe from a previous nuke, maybe through auras and stuff like that. Okay. And you gain life again. In response to the trigger, your opponent kills Amalia. When you explore, are we going to nuke everything now? Yeah, mm-hmm. we are. And it doesn't matter whether you reveal a land or a non-land, because <laughs> Amalia's gone, Amalia's still explored, that ability's still resolving, and we use last known information to determine whether or not we blowed everything up. So, Woof. yeah. So, like, you could blow a whole moon up that way. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, you could blow up a thousand of them. Or even a thousandth of a moon. Uh, just one one thousandth. Just one one thousandth of a moon. Yes. yes. That sounds great. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I have the, the the privilege of introducing everybody to Anim Pakal, Thousandth Moon, for one a red and a white. It's a one-two legendary creature, human soldier, with the following text. Whenever you attack with one or more non-gnome creatures, put a plus one, plus one counter on Anim Pakal, then create X plus uh, X one one colorless gnome artifact creature tokens that are tapped and attacking, where X is the number of plus one plus one counters on a name Pakal. Um, this is really cool. You want to know why it's really cool? It's a lot like Krenko Tin Street Kingpin, only a little bit better because it doesn't actually require a name to attack, enable for the trigger to happen. Uh, you can keep a name back from attackers and trigger from one or more non-gnome creatures. Uh, you'll choose which player, planeswalker, or battle. The gnome tokens are attacking when they are created and put into the battlefield attacking. So, you know, it, they, has to, they have to still have a choice as to what they're attacking. They don't, they don't just show up and yell in, in rage and, and wave weapons in the air and just run towards the enemy. Um, they do have to have a target. Well, not a target target, but they have to know what they're attacking. Um, even though they enter as attacking creatures, they are never declared as an attacking creature and wouldn't trigger other events checking for if you attacked, the, the, the exact phrase, if you attacked with a creature. X is checked on resolution of the trigger. If you can add counters before the trigger resolves, but after it was put on the stack, then even better for you, of course. Uh, if Anim Pakal is no longer on the battlefield, use last known information to determine how many counters were on it. Cool. Awesome. So when all these gnomes attack, there has to be a lot of bloodshed and bloodletting, no? <clears throat> I don't know. I thought gnomes, gnomes were like are... inventors and stuff. I, I would think they'd They're be... artifact creatures. Yeah. Are they not as violent as, as the gabos can be? Uh, are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I heard that was a stretch. I, Gnomes were actually an interesting side conversation on Twitter a week or two ago because a lot of people didn't understand where where gnomes were coming from on Ixalan. Um, But I don't know that I remember what the answer was. So we can just move on. Yeah, that's fair. Let's move on to Bloodletter of Eklazots. Uh, Bloodletter of Eklazots is one black, black, black for a 2-4 creature vampire demon. This has flying, and if an opponent would lose life during your turn they lose twice that much life instead. Now, there's very handy reminder text here that says, damage causes 
loss of life. So remember that while damage does cause loss of life, this card does not double the damage. It doubles the life lost from that damage or as a result of that damage. So let's say I'm attacking Brian with a 3-3 lifelinker. I will gain only 3 life, even though Brian will lose 6 life because the processing of that damage leads to losing double the damage or double the amount of life from that 3 damage, so Brian would lose 6 life. This also applies to commander damage as well. So for instance, if you're dealing let's say 20 commander damage, because you couldn't quite get that last one point in, you're not going to double the amount of commander damage you're doing. You will still stay at the 20 commander damage just short, but you will have resulted in having that opponent lose 40 life, which hopefully should be enough. Yeah. Pretty sick card. Yeah. It is just to hoard all that life loss. (laughs) Oh, look. The next card. (laughs) <laughs> is Bone Horde Dracusar. Bone Horde is ready. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alright. So for three red red, this is a five five dinosaur dragon. You know, as they are. I love this. Uh with flying and first strike. Oof. Um at the beginning of your upkeep. Exile the top two cards from your library. I got you for two whole cards. Um, You may play them this turn. If you exiled a land card this way, create a 3-1 red dinosaur creature token. And if you exiled a non-land card this way, create a treasure token. Alright, so just two quick things. Uh, You still have to pay all costs and timing restrictions for the exiled cards. Okay, you can play them this turn, but you still gotta pay the mana and you gotta obey the timing rules. Also, this is this is uh, let's let's read this wording again. You're gonna exile the top two cards of the library. You may play them this turn. If you exile the land card this way, create a three-one red dinosaur creature token. If you exile a non-land card this way, create a treasure token. It doesn't say for each land card you exiled this way, create a three-one. It's just it going. Out of those two cards, did you exile a land? If so, you get a 3-1. And did you exile a non-land? If so, you get a treasure. So you're either going to get uh, a 3-1, a treasure token, or a 3-1 and a treasure token. You are not going to be able to get two 3-1s or two treasure tokens. Clear? Yeah. Bone Horde is hoarding all those treasure tokens and all those 3-1 dinosaur creature tokens. He doesn't want to give out more than one. I, I just want to know what the possum is doing. What the possum is doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a possum. possum on the, on, there's a possum in the art. Uh, on the stairs on the bottom left-hand corner of the art right oh, next yeah. to the horde, that's a little possum. Isn't he cute? That's the possum sneaking away one treasure token at a time. Yeah, that must be it. And you know, that's a possum. That's <laughs> Right? Oh, it is a possum. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Holy. You're welcome. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> maybe maybe the possum's looking for the net. Which net? The braided net, of course. Hey. So, hey, we got there. So, <laughs> braided net is uh, an artifact for two and a blue. And it states, braided net enters the battlefield with three net counters on it. Tap and remove a net counter from braided net. You can tap another 
target non-land permanent. Its activated abilities can't be activated for as long as it remains tapped. And it has the text craft with an artifact for a one and a blue. And if you craft with an artifact, uh, sacrificing braided net and, and, and the artifact you get, uh, braided kipu, which is the flip side of braided net, and braided kipu is an artifact with the activated ability for three and a blue and tap. Draw a card for each artifact you control, then put braided kipu into its owner's library third from the top. Cool. You can put a target non-land permanent that's already tapped. You can target a non-land permanent that's already tapped. That's allowed. Uh, and this effect has a duration that ends when the permanent becomes untapped. It doesn't re-lose abilities when it becomes tapped again. Okay. Nice. Welcome oh, back, old look friend. At, look at that. Look what's here. In, I forgot that was in, in the set. In all their glory, adding to Pioneer and bringing back all the typal decks, let's talk about one of my favorite cards ever, Cavern of Souls. Cavern of Souls is a land that has the ability, as Cavern of Souls enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. You can tap it to add a colorless mana, or you can tap it to add one mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast a creature spell of the chosen type, and that spell can't be countered. Okay, so I put this card in here for a very specific reason. Let's go back to the days of 2012, when Cavern of Souls first made its appearance in the world. The default for Cavern of Souls. Were either of you judging back then? I was not judging at this time. Uh, wait, no, 2012? No, I was not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. I was not judging at the time, so I'm hearing all this third hand, uh, but it, just looking back at some of the things that I read, and we're going to include a link in the show notes here to a blog from the magicjudges.org blog from back in the day, talking about a ruling relating to Cavern of Souls, and I think uh, Brian may have some stories for us on this too, but let's talk about a ruling that's kind of in place for Cavern of Souls. And that ruling is that unless you specify otherwise, you are assumed to be casting with the mana of any color that would make that creature uncounterable as long as you are casting a creature that shares a type with the named type for Cavern of Souls. So if you're like me and you name Giant with Cavern of Souls and you go to cast your Primeval Titan, I don't have to announce that I'm using the green mana from that second ability to cast my primeval titan it is just assumed by default that i am doing it now some the reason why we're mentioning this is because this isn't actually found in any of the official policy documents but that's why we're telling you right now that's the ruling encourage everybody to be super clear about the types that are being named with cavern so that you don't have any issues with this down the line there is a blog post that we're going to link to and uh, in our archives, in episode 40 of JudgeCast, you can go back and listen to uh, the OG crew of JudgeCast chatting about this in the first place. Any fun stories or insights on that, Brian? So so first off, this, this episode, was, episode 40, was the coolest idea and the worst possible execution. Okay, <laughs> so we had we had on... Uh, John Lauks from Limited Resources. 
on oh, the show. Oh, I remember this one. This is 2012, yep. And we were going to do a crack-a-pack, only instead of draft picks, we were going to talk about rules scenarios from the cards. Which seemed like a wonderful idea on paper. So we cracked a pack, and like all the cards are so boring. Like all of them were <laughs> were super boring. Not like you know the uh, best of times. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Novels that we have nowadays. No, you were you were opening you, know? it, you were opening a draft booster. So you had yeah whatever number of uncommons and, and commons uh-huh. and and one rare, and yeah. you had vanilla creatures back then. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could see that as being just terribly sad. <laughs> but but yeah, but like sets sets nowadays are so complex that even you would need an uncountable infinite set of monkeys in order to write these sets. Not not a countably infinite because you know you like infinity's not big enough to for the number of monkeys to write these. But anyway, uh, yeah, we. We had uh, John Locks on. It was a it was a Judge Cast limited resources crossover, and it was terrible. <laughs> it was so, <laughs> so no yeah. odds thank, of an LSV or Marshall Sutcliffe follow up to that. Now that every I, card is an actual book of text. Yeah, no, they've 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 gone they've gone on and become popular, and we are still with the same pool of listeners that we had back then. <laughs> Because it's just judge. It's it's mostly judges. It's Hello to every nerds. non-judge who is uh, listening to us. We appreciate you, and we hope to see yeah. you in our Discord. Yes, come on down. All right, but but yeah, okay. So in the beginning, when this announcement was made, where it's just like, hey, if you don't if you don't announce that you're using that ability, you're just tapping it for colorless. That that was the ruling because in um, judging. Okay, we don't want we don't want assumptions. Okay, we don't, you know. And what was from a play standpoint, you know, people don't really pay attention to land, so they would just tap tap the lands and not necessarily make an announcement as to what color it was doing. So it was like, nope, you've got to be explicit about the color. You've got to be explicit. We do not like non communication resulting in ambiguity. So we said, if you do not communicate, you get the you get the colorless option. And then Wizards was like, hey, we don't want it to work that way. So uh, <laughs> can you change it? And because Watsy kind of owned slash controlled the judge program, uh, we said, uh, thank you, sir. May we have another? And we changed it. <laughs> and it's yes, it's better, but that's the way things went. Anyhow, I mean, at least it works in the way it was intended. <clears throat> so that's a plus. I, I don't think that they had put that thought in there until we had to make a ruling and they were like, Oh wait, we don't, we'd rather it be the funner way. Um, <laughs> but speaking of thank you, may I have another, uh, <laughs> Ch- Chimil, is that, is that, let me check my, go back and check my handy dandy pronunciation guide. Chimil, Chamazel, Hassenfeth Incorporated. <laughs> yeah. Chimil, the inner son is a six mana legendary artifact. Spells you control can't be countered. At the beginning of your instep, discover five. So, you can still counter Shamil, the inner sun, while it is on the stack. Okay? Uh, you can also still cast counter spell type cards. They just won't actually counter the spell. Additional effects are still going to happen. So, if it's like counter target spell scry one, 
you get cast it, it's not going to counter, but you still get to scry one. Okay. You don't have to worry about like the same targeting rules. It's not like I can't target the spell because it can't be countered. You can still target it because it it doesn't say target, you know, counter target spell that can be countered. Right? It just says counter target spell. So target spell there. Also, things that counter by exiling or returning to the hand from the stack, those still work. Okay, because you're not countering the spell. Also, as a reminder, if I cast a spell, so if I have this Chamil and I cast a spell like, you know, that that uh you know target creature, you know, deals five damage or something like that, the spell and, and then that creature gets removed. I had a one target spell, that target's gone. The spell is just put into the graveyard. It is not countered. So Chamil doesn't get around like countering from a game rules perspective. I'm doing finger quotes because it's not technically countering, but colloquially it's fizzling. Awesome card. I just don't know how to transition this. So we're just going to go with (laughs) Curator of Sun's Creation for three and a red. Uh, It is a 3-3 creature human artificer. Whenever you discover, discover again for the same value. This ability triggers only once each turn, so you don't get to, you know, abuse this unless you figure out how to. And then you can write us at judgecast at gmail.com. Um, a note about this, you discover it when you are done with the whole process. So from exile and putting cards on the bottom of the library, even if one or more of the actions in the sequence were impossible, you still have to finish the whole thing. That's a pretty dire situation, I think, if you can't. If something is just impossible, I, I I feel like I would just I, I feel like I would just blunder around doing it. Yeah, or I I just flail. You flail about. <laughs> Onward to dire flail. So dire flail is an artifact equipment for a single red mana that reads: equipped creature gets plus two plus zero. Equip one, and it has craft with artifact three red red. <clears throat> and if you were to craft with an artifact, it would turn into the dire blunderbuss which is also an artifact equipment and reads equipped creature gets plus three plus zero and has whenever this creature attacks, you may sacrifice an artifact other than dire blunderbuss. When you do, this creature deals damage equal to its power to target creature and it has equip one. So can I, can I just point something out really quick? Yeah. This is a double faced card, mm-hmm. double faced card. And it's still only has one line of flavor text in the small font. <laughs> That's all you get. On the backside. Yeah. On yeah. the backside. Thought all you right. were out of my skull bashing range, didn't you? I do like yes, that. Yes, I did. <laughs> so now we enter the uh, mandatory discussion about reflexive triggers. So in this instance, you don't choose a target for the triggered ability granted by a dire blunderbuss at the time that it triggers. Rather, a second reflexive ability triggers when you sacrifice another artifact in this way. You then put that trigger onto the stack like any other trigger. Also, in that ability, you use the power of the creature when the delayed triggered ability resolves to determine how much damage to deal, including any kind of last known information. If that creature had lifelink when it left, the source of the damage will still have lifelink. Or rather, if this creature has, the creature that is equipped has lifelink. This says, this creature deals damage equal to its power to target creatures. So, 
Uh, if they blow up that creature out from under this equipment, that creature still had lifelink under last known information, so the source of the damage would still have lifelink. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, in, it does, lots of flailing. You get you get the you get the lifelink. Uh, you you could have had it all because you're rolling in the deep. <laughs> Is there an echo in oh. here? It's terrible. Yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate okay. that so much. Echoing deeps. This is a land cave. You may have echoing deeps enter the battlefield tapped as a copy of any land card in a graveyard, except it's a cave in addition to its other types. Okay, and then you you can tap it for a colorless. The only real thing of note on this particular card is you may choose to not have it echo- enter the battlefield as a co- as a tapped copy of any land in the graveyard. Let's say you don't got anything in the graveyard and you just need a mana. You can play this and because the entering the battlefield tapped part is part of the copy effect and the copy effect is may, you can just play it as an untapped land, an untapped cave that taps for colorless. But um bump. This seems like a really really good card for, you know, legacy and vintage or Whatever those formats are where they play expensive cards and you can create a merit large, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean it's still it's still gonna enter with the counters. Yeah, because yeah. it is entering and you're choosing it as it enters the battlefield. Is it okay. Uh, you know. Yeah. Still still good. If mm. if they it could it could be your backup your backup plans. Yeah. I feel enlightened now. Good. <laughs> All right, so we have the Enigma Jewel. It is a legendary artifact for one and a, for for a blue for one blue, right? Uh, it has probably the creepiest art on a card I've seen in a long time. It's pretty pretty <laughs> out there. Uh, it has the text: "The Enigma Jewel enters the battlefield tapped." Uh, when you want to, you can tap it uh, as an activated ability and add two colorless mana spend this mana only to activate abilities craft with four or more non-land cards with activated abilities for eight and a blue eight and a blue exile the remainder of texas eight and a blue exile this artifact exile four or more uh the four or more from among other permanents you control and or cards in your graveyard Return this card transformed under its owner's control. Craft only as a sorcery. And what you get when you craft is something called Locus of Enlightenment. It is a legendary artifact as well with a color identity of blue. And Locus of Enlightenment has each activated ability of the exiled cards used to craft it. You may activate each of those abilities only once each turn. Whenever you activate an ability that isn't a mana ability... You copy it. You may choose new talk, new targets for this copy or for the copy. So, um, going over this card was a request from user Iron Cretan in our Discord, and they were asking what would happen on Lotus of Enlightenment if you have two copies of the same card exiled with the ability. You would in fact have each activated ability on each card put onto Locus once, meaning in the end you'd have two instances. Uh, and each one would be able to be activated only once each turn. So you'd be getting around the the once each turn thing because you'd have two instances you could activate number one and then activate number two. Also, this is a really good place to highlight activated abilities. 
and they are formatted as cost colon effect. So everything before the colon is the cost and that must be paid to activate the ability and everything after the colon is an ability is the ability and will only happen upon resolving the ability. Essentially, it's really important to be able to identify what an activated ability is because Locus of Enlightenment is hopefully going to get a whole lot of them. Oh, yeah. Myriad activated abilities, if you will. Yes. Yes. Almost yes. ever flowing. Ever flowing. Like the well. I know that card. That's the ever flowing well for two and a blue. It is a legendary artifact. And it reads, when the ever-flowing well enters the battlefield, mill two cards, then draw two cards. And it has descend eight at the beginning of your upkeep. If there are eight or more permanent cards in your graveyard, transform the ever-flowing well. And it transforms into the Myriad Pools, a legendary artifact land that can tap to add blue and has the ability, whenever you cast or the triggered ability, whenever you cast a permanent spell using mana produced by the myriad pools, up to one other target permanent you control becomes a copy of that spell until end of turn. So going back to our Discord, thank you to Graham for the suggestion on covering this card. Here, let's talk about a few things. First of all, the triggered ability from the myriad pools will resolve before the spell does. So let's say I have, I'm casting a Primeval Titan, because that's what I always cast. Uh, I'm casting a Primeval Titan, and this triggered ability goes onto the stack. I can have another permanent I control become a copy of that Primeval Titan until end of turn. And that will be on the battlefield before the Primeval Titan that I cast resolves and enters the battlefield. Now that, of course, brings up the question, what does it mean to have a permanent become a copy of a spell anyway? So the permanent is going to copy what is printed on the original card, plus any choices that were made when casting the spell, except for X, because X is still going to be zero. But any choices you made when casting that permanent, if it had a choice to make, all that stays the same. It is the printed copy on the original card. It's not going to have any modifications or anything like that. It is going to be an, a photocopy of that original card. And since the copy is already on the battlefield, there aren't any triggers that would start off from when this permanent enters the battlefield, like my friend Primeval Titan. The copy I have on the battlefield will not trigger an enter the battlefield effect, but I could always attack with it and get it, so that's fine. That's cool. Cool, cool. Um, hey, I made a mistake earlier in the episode. Ooh, terrible Ooh, yes what's wrong this was with with the craft mechanic mm -hmm. i parsed it incorrectly where it oh. says exile from among permanents you control and or cards in your graveyard i interpreted that as from among permanents you control or permanent cards in your graveyard that is not correct it is permanents you control and or separate clause cards in your graveyard uh, oh. specific as as evidenced by uh, such cards as uh, uh, or rich stalactite, which has craft with four or more red instants and or sorcery cards, which kind of <laughs> means that they can't be permanent cards in the uh, in the graveyard. Sure. Yes. Good okay. catch. 
Yes, so I just wanted to go back. That is not a card that we were talking about, but I was going back and forth, and I was like, mm, it's, it's, it's really being ambiguous and vague. Maybe I'm I'm parsing this wrong. So, yes. Uh, conveniently enough, Orich Delagtite, which was not a card that we're going on with, says craft with four or more red instants and or sorcery cards. Shocker, you're going to have to go to your graveyard for that because you should not have... <laughs> uh, red instance or sorcery cards on on the on the battlefield, and, and why is that? Because of SBA's friendly listener, which we just covered recently. Well, there's also a rule that says if an instant would enter the battlefield, it just doesn't. Right, right. So, um, all right. So glad that we explored that little rule twist. So if you if you wrote a uh, you know like a little tweet or something like that ha we already figured out that we made the mistake um <laughs> explorer's cash is one in a green for an artifact explorer cash enters the battlefield with two plus one plus one counters on it whenever a creature you control with a plus one plus one counter on it dies put a plus one plus one counter on explorer cash and then you can tap to move a plus one plus one counter from explorer cash onto target creature Activate only as a sorcery. All right. So the thing here is it says move a plus one plus one counter. Well, guess what? Moving ain't really moving. Now, some of us developer types or computer programmer types know that know that sometimes to, to move is really a delete add pair. And that's really what this is here is you're removing the counter from Explorer Cache and then you are adding a counter of the same type to the target creature. So effects that care about removing or placing counters on things are going to see those distinct parts of this move, okay? However, they, they are linked in the sense that the counter that you're removing is going to, or the counter that you're placing on the thing is the same type that you're removing. And they're linked in the fact that if you can't remove, you can't add. If you can't add, you can't remove. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's just see here. So Explorer's Cache is tap. When I said it's tap, move a plus one, plus one counter onto target creature. That's tap, colon, move a plus one, plus one counter from Explorer Cache onto target creature. So I tap, activate the ability, and my opponent blows up my Explorer Cache. I cannot remove a counter from Explorer Cache to put on, a tar put on the other creature. I can't move it. So because I can't remove the counter... The rules don't let me add the counter either. Okay. Moving on. I, I just feel a growing sense of pride in being able to be here with my co-hosts. and it, it feels right, you know? Just just, just, just right. And, and, and glowing as well. But let's talk about growing rights of Ethlimok. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, for two and a green, it's a legendary Chapman. And it says, when Growing Rights of Ethlamok enters the battlefield, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a creature card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest of the bottom of your library in any order. At the beginning of your end step, if you control four or more creatures, transform Growing Rights of Ethlamok. Uh, and then it has the flip side, which is Ethlamok Cradle of the Sun. It's a legendary land. And it has tap, add green mana, or tap, add green mana for each creature you control. So it's a very powerful ramp ability. 
um, a card with an intervening if creature. So let's go back to this for a second. When Growing Rights of Ithlamok enters the battlefield, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a creature card. Um, now that's not the if part. The if part's at the beginning of your end step if you control four or more creatures. So we have a trigger that won't trigger at your end step if you don't have four or more creatures on the battlefield. If you do, and in response to the trigger, you happen to lose one of them, let's say, you know, somebody murders your creature, um, it will check again on resolution. And when it does, your trigger will do nothing. It will not transform into the great Ethelmont cradle, cradle of the sun. Yeah, this is a great card. I, I'll, I mean, I wish it was, you know, like a judge foil or something. <laughs> oh, wait, it was just last year. So I guess, yeah, it's about right to have that reprinted. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> yeah, it was. Oh, this is a reprint? It is. It was in the original. Yeah, this isn't a new card. It sounded yeah, familiar yeah. to me. I wasn't sure. And yeah. a judge foil from last year. You know. Oh, cool. This I... is the year that they've just been like, you know, let's just reprint all the judge foils. Yeah, into the ground. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you for guiding us and lighting the way with your glow cap lantern, Brian. So here we have oh. glow cap lantern. It is an artifact equipment for a single green mana and it has a crypt creature has you may look at the top card of your library anytime and whenever this creature attacks it explores and it has equipped two so this is a pet peeve of mine let's talk about looking at the top card of your library at any time first of all this ability does not use the stack so the phrase in response i look at the top card of my library not a thing don't need to say it. Just look. It's fine. You can look at the top card of your library with this on the battlefield uh, and equipped just at the same as you would be able to look at any of the cards in your hand. So, minor pet peeve over. In in response, I'd like to be <laughs> smug. Also, yes. you. That is something that I believe would... I'd call that a special action. But, all right. Anyways. Yeah. I can be, I can be smug at any time. That is true. You, you can absolutely be smug at any time. Um, well... But with looking at the top card of your library, you can do that literally at any time, but it does have one exception. So, if the top card of your library changes while you're casting a spell, playing a land, or activating an ability, you can't look at the new top card of your library until you finish doing whatever it is you're in the middle of doing. So, for example, let's say, does that mean that while exploring, while deciding where to put the card I revealed that I can look at the top card of my library and see what it is to decide to help me, you know, figure out what to do with that card I'm exploring? No, because the card that you're exploring is actually the top card of your library. It's not in your hand. It's not anywhere else. You're looking at it. You're just having to reveal it to everyone else as well. And you don't get any further information about what's on top of your library. So in this instance... No worries there. Finish what you're doing and then be smug and continue looking at the top card of your library whenever you feel like. Yep. All right. Did I go out of order? You did. You did. <laughs> I did. That's that's why we were thinking thinking you were gonna glow instead of grow. Yeah. I thought you were <laughs> I, I thought you that. were gonna make the segue of uh lighting the way for the judges. Right. Oh, oh but it's terrible. It's fine. You're, you're a grower, not a glower. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. 
I, I think so we the need... next. <laughs> you are such a poet with words. You know that. You, you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was gonna, I was gonna say like you know something else that people can be smug about is knowing how to pronounce this card correctly. Wathley Poet of Unity is a two and a green for a two three legendary creature human warrior bard. When Wathley Poet of Unity enters the battlefield, search your library for a basic land card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle. For three Boros Boros hybrids, uh, exile Wathley. Uh, then return her to the battlefield. I'm pausing before I say it because I'm checking the pronunciation guide every single time. Um, <laughs> exile her, then return her to the battlefield transformed under her owner's control. Activate only as a sorcery. And she transforms into Roar of the Fifth People, which is kind of a cool name. Has four chapter It's a saga, enchantment saga, with four chapter abilities. Chapter one. Create two 3-3 three, three green dinosaur creature tokens. Chapter 2, Roar of the Fifth People gains. Creatures you control have tap, add uh, green, red, or white to your mana pool. Chapter 3, search a library for a dinosaur card, reveal it, and put it in your hand, then shuffle. Chapter 4, dinosaurs you control gain double strike and trample until end of turn. Woof. Wow. All right. So... This is a question uh, we were asked to cover this card from our Discord. Uh, this time regarding Wathley's Backface, which is a saga. First off, uh, once the second chapter ability resolves, it doesn't have a duration, meaning like it's not until end of turn or anything like that. It's going to end when the saga goes away. But as long as the saga's on the battlefield, you got that thing. So... Uh, also, as pointed out by the Discord, the saga doesn't turn back into Wathley, uh, unlike the Praetors that transform le from legendary creatures into sagas and back and stuff like that. So, you'll just have to settle with your double-striking, trampling dinosaurs one turn. Oh, Hopefully no. you won't need to <laughs> turn back to Wathley's side, so... Yeah. That's all. Since I went out of turn, is it my turn again? Yeah, you just you just I'm just making things up as I go along here. I am the I am the keeper oh. of the the rules of of the lore of the land. It's it's okay. It's oh that's that's a stretch, man. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> that's really terrible. So oh boy, uh, so watch our standards uh, tumble the, and fall. This <laughs> right. this this one's a little this one's a little tougher. Um, Ishali, lore keeper for green. Is a 1-1 creature human druid. Tap. Add one mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast a dinosaur spell or activate an ability of a dinosaur source. So a dinosaur source is any object with a creature type dinosaur. It could be activating an ability of a dinosaur in your hand or graveyard. Or if you animate a multivolt, mutavolt, mutavolt, and want to activate uh, an ability of it again. There's. This is also a good time to mention that a recent change in which came out this week discussing change of a few card types and a renaming of the formerly known as tribal cards. Those card types, which will allow you to have creature types on them are now known as kindred cards. There are currently no kindred dinosaur cards, but modern horizons three is coming next year. And who knows what that could bring. 
Uh, remember that kindred cards are spells that can add a creature type to another card type like instant or enchantment. Somebody ran off yeah. with... I got nothing here. I'm My brain is fried at this point on segways. So I'm just going to go ahead and talk about our friend You're just here. Burning, it, burning it to the ground? Burn it to the ground. Oh, wait, that's that's he, that's he, that's arsonist. Yeah, he's, arsonist. Just, okay. he's, he's just sailing away, man. Oops. No, this is actually Kitesel L Arsonist who burns things to the ground. That's now lore, that is canon. Let's go. Kitesel L Arsonist. L Arsonist is two and a blue for a creature human pirate two three with flying and ward one. And whenever Kitesail L Arsonist enters the battlefield for each player, choose up to one other target artifact or creature that player controls. For as long as Kitesail L Arsonist remains on the battlefield, the chosen permanent uh, permanents become treasure artifacts with tap, sacrifice this artifact, add one mana of any color, and lose all other abilities. So, with this, uh, let's chat a little bit about setting a card type. Uh, whenever you set a card type on any other card type, it means that any subtypes that were associated with the previous card type are removed along with the card types that I had before. It would only remain if the subtype is also a subtype of the remaining types of the card. Uh, so in this instance, it's turning them into treasure artifacts. Uh, so if it's an artifact subtype, it may still keep that subtype. But typically it's going to lose, for example, dinosaur because it's no longer a creature dinosaur. Uh, that all just goes along with type changing abilities. Also, supertypes work independently of a card's type and subtype, and removing or changing types won't actually remove supertypes like basic or snow or legendary. So in this instance, you can perhaps have a couple of creatures that were legendary now turn into legendary treasure artifacts, which, as we all know, means you will only be able to keep one of them. Have fun with that. All right. Next up... Yeah is look at that look at that name look at that kootzeal malamet exemplar we planned this we wanted you to have the exemplar card yep all right (laughs) so uh this this one is your opponent uh sorry it's one green and a white for a three three legendary creature cat warrior that says your opponents can't cast spells during your turn that's it that's all the card says Nothing else. Uh, mm, really? <laughs> okay. Uh, it says whenever one or more... Okay, let's just talk about this. Um, whenever one or more creatures you control, each with power greater than its base power deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. Oh. <sighs> All right, this this wording, and you know they didn't answer the most basic question in the release notes, which is WTF with this wording. <laughs> All right, so now let's talk about the part that's really confusing people, which is whenever one or more creatures you control, each with power greater than its base power, what each is basically saying is you evaluate each creature individually. You don't like sum up or cross powers or something like that, where it's like, I've got one seven, seven, and then a bunch of three threes. Um, so therefore I've got 
you know, a bunch of creatures where there's power greater than their base power. This is this is basically you're just looking at that each creature and if and if one or more of them has a power greater than its own base power, then you're going to draw a card. Okay, really awkward. I think they probably could have said whenever one or more creatures you control with a power greater than its base power. I mean, yeah, they could have just, if they, instead of saying each with, if they just said with its power greater than its, you know, its power greater than its base power, that would have solved the problem. Yeah, so this, so to clarify, this does not need every single creature to have its power greater than its base power, just one or more creatures you control. Yeah, this isn't banding. This isn't, this isn't <laughs> base power banding. Okay. All right. Well, that's a very enigmatic card. <laughs> that, that could quite possibly be the worst transition I've ever heard. I, it's, it's up there. It's got to be wait, up there. Give me like, give me like, like an hour. A, a, hey, y'all, watch this. What? What? <laughs> I mean. Oh, come you on. Know. Come on. I mean, you, you, you really, you really had, you really had to shoehorn that one in there a little bit. I mean, it, it, it was like a gallon, a galleon of of just bad road there. there. I don't know. There we go. It's terrible, boy. terrible. You brought it home. Okay, uh, magmatic galleon for three and two red is a five five artifact vehicle. Uh, when Magmatic Galleon enters the battlefield, it deals five damage to target creature and opponent controls. Whenever one or more creatures your opponent control are dealt excess non-combat damage, create a treasure token. So excess damage is based on how much damage constitutes what we consider to be lethal damage. And usually it's based on the toughness of the creature, uh, but it does take into account previous damage marked on it and death touch um, will only require one point of damage to be considered lethal, for instance. Therefore, anything above one from a source with death touch would be considered excess damage. Makes sense. Sounds great. Cool. Um, it does have crew. It does have crew too. So uh, if you want to do the crew thing, you can turn it into a five-five. Yep. You just need two live crew. Two live crew. Sounds great. <laughs> That's a joke that literally goes back to the previous millennium, Brian. Yes. Oh, he's aware. I'm old. <laughs> Thank you. Love that. So let's bring up the calendar and let's point out the millennium calendar, which is a one mana cost legendary artifact. Whenever you untap one or more permanents during your untap step, put that many time counters on the millennium calendar. You can pay two and tap it to double the number of time counters on the Millennium Calendar. And then it has a lovely ability. When there are 1,000 or more time counters on the Millennium Calendar, sacrifice it, and each opponent loses 1,000 life. <laughs> oh, the Millennial Calendar has arrived. Um, I've seen a lot of wonky questions about this online, and... One thing to note, very important thing to note, nobody receives priority during the untap step. Whatever infinite combo you think you can execute during your untap step, you actually can't. 
The only thing that happens during the untap step is the turn-based action that says untap your permanence. And phasing. And phasing. Yes, you're right. Phasing happens first and then untap because otherwise you have a tap <laughs> permanent forever. But uh, those are the only two things that happen. Turn-based actions. From there, any triggered abilities that triggered, wait until you would get priority in your upkeep to be put onto the stack. So nobody gets priority until past the point where you can be untapping and twiddling permanence during your untap step because that first line specifically says whenever you untap one or more permanence during your untap step then do this the other really fun thing about this card this card has a state trigger state triggers do not come up very often but we're going to dive into them state triggers will trigger whenever a game state that is described is true instead of when a particular event occurs or instead of a particular time of the turn. So once a state triggered ability is put onto the stack, that ability doesn't trigger again until the ability has resolved, has been countered, or has otherwise left the stack. If that trigger leaves the stack and does not resolve, and the game state remains the same, the trigger will be triggered again and will be put onto the stack. And again, and again, and again, until the game state changes. Again, all it's looking for is, is this condition true? Are there a thousand or more time counters on the Millennium Calendar? Cool, you want to stifle that triggered ability? Okay, that gets countered. Okay, is it still true? Well, triggers again, and you got another one? And keeps going until it's done. So if you have some way to... You set it up so that there's some combination where it's like whenever a triggered ability of a artifact triggers, it's countered. Or something like that. The game's just a draw. Yep. Okay. Some stacks player is going to oh. find that deck. Yep. All right. We have O'Hare Ashoneal. Ashenil, the deepest might, which is a two red red for a legendary creature god, a four four legendary creature god, uh, that with trample, as uh, four four gods are uh, tend to do. If a red source you control would deal an amount of non combat damage less than O'Hare's power to an opponent, that source uh, that source deals damage equal to O'Hare's. Power instead. When O'Hare... I'm, I'm just saying the first one because I don't want to... Ash, Ash O'Neill. When O'Hare Ash O'Neill dies, return it to the battlefield. Tapped and transformed under its owner's control. And it turns into Temple of Power. Which is just tap at a red. And then two in a red. To tap, transform, Temple of Power. Activate only if a red source you control. Dealt four or more combat damage this turn. And only as a sorcery. Alright, so... Let's go back to uh, if a red source you control would deal an amount of non-combat damage less than Ashenil's power to an opponent, that source deals damage equal to Ashenil's power instead. So if something's going to deal two, it's going to deal four unless you pump Ashenil's power up, which go for it. Um, replacement effects that modify damage. Super fun, particularly when you start uh, assigning or distributing damage 
Um, so if you have a spell that distributes non-combat damage among that many turn uh, targets, fireball for instance, uh, you distribute the damage unmodified by the replacement effect. So you've got three damage, and you're going to deal. You know, you got three damage, and you're dividing it up amongst three uh, little creatures. That's going to be one to each, and then we're going to replace each of those with Asha Neal's power, and they're going to go to four. So kablooey. <laughs> That's the technical yeah. term, folks. Is that a new official yeah, Judgecast sound well, effect? Poof and yeah, kablooey. kablooey. No, this is okay. So this is this goes in your uh, your it goes in your, your skull. Gearson, Gearson, Starn, Keller, Morph, EDH deck as a secondary commander. Yeah, that's that is the the pugnacious approach I take to dealing. I actually don't know what pugnacious. Wait, wait to hammer it home there. Yeah, we're gonna look up pugnacious <laughs> real quick. Eager or quick to argue, quarrel or fight. I am pugnacious. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, pugnacious hammer skull is two and a green, and it is a six-six creature dinosaur. Uh, two and a green, six-six creature dinosaur. Yes, you read that right. So let's see why it's a 6-6 for 3 mana. Um, whenever Pugnacious Hammerskull attacks, while you don't control another dinosaur, you put a stun counter on it. So, you know, it's running into the wall, it hits its head, it's stunned for a moment. Cool. Very neat. Um, so, quick reminder on stun counters. They are a replacement effect that change when you do uh, what you do any time that you would untap the permanent so instead of going to untap during the untap step, um, you would remove a stun counter until there are no more stun counters remaining on the on the creature or the or the object. Also, if you don't control another dinosaur when this creature is declared as an attacker, it doesn't matter if you gain one when the ability resolves. So none of those shenanigans where uh, something creates another attacking dinosaur, uh, it will still receive a stun counter. Trigger condition only matters for putting it on the stack. The effect. Resolving just puts a stun counter and doesn't care or check about other dinos, which is kind of sad, but okay, I get it. Yeah, you don't want too many random dinos roaming around all over the place. No, it's, the no. it's, it's terrible. You get charged more if you're roaming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, all these references that the younger judges will not get. Right. <laughs> roaming? What's that? Well, you see. Oh, back in my day. Ask your parents if you don't get that one. Um, right. Roaming Throne is an artifact creature golem for four generic mana. It is a 4-4 four, four with Ward 2. As Roaming Throne enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Roaming Throne is the chosen type in addition to its other types. If a triggered ability of another creature you control of the chosen type triggers, it triggers an additional time. Uh, not much note here, except that this does not copy the triggered abilities. It simply causes the ability to trigger again. So with two of these on the battlefield, choosing the same creature type, that will result in three triggers. So the original trigger, and then the additional trigger for Roaming Throne number one, and additional trigger for Roaming Throne number two, resulting in three total triggers. 
each trigger is handled separately because it did trigger each time and it's not copying. So if there are any modes or choices that you make as you put those triggers on the stack, you make them independently of each other and they can all do something completely different from the others if you have that many modes or choices. So have fun. Well, not not don't have fun by naming Time Lord as the creature type. <laughs> oh, no. Just, right. Are you still scarred from Command Fest Orlando? Yeah, I am. Those decks were miserable. Th- that that this card just says name Time Lord and Brian Scoops because <laughs> I don't want to. I just don't want to sit through that. That's Stupid, valid. Timey wimey dick. Okay, next up we got uh, Sovereign Okinik Ahau. Uh, for two green and a white is a three four legendary creature, Cat Noble with Ward two. And whenever Sovereign Okinik Ahau attacks, for each creature you control with power greater than that creature's base... Why do I get these? With, <laughs> um, for each creature you control with power greater than base power, put a number of plus one, plus one counters on that creature equal to the difference. All right, so this is another one that came up from our, our Discord, which is like, can you just explain this thing? Basically, what this is is asking is, it says, whenever uh, Akinika Howe attacks, for each creature you control with power greater than that creature's base power. So the base power is um, what's printed on the card or things that change its base power. Like if an enchantment sets its base power to 3-3 to three, three, or sets its base power to 4-4 four, four, or sets its base power to 0-1. Uh, in layer speak... That would be layer 7B, okay? Because layer 7-1 is characteristic defining abilities. Layer 7, uh, 7B is things that set its base power and toughness. So either what's printed on the card or 7B. Then things like counters, giant growth, um, uh, equipment can modify that. So essentially, what this does is, just to use an example, if I have a uh, a bear cub and it is equipped with a Volshock Morningstar, which is an equipment that gives plus two, <laughs> plus two, all right, the difference in my base cubs, my bear cubs, <laughs> my bear cubs base power and toughness and its actual power and toughness is two. Right, because it's a two-two. Its base power and toughness is two-two, but it's equipped to get plus two, plus two. So it's it's a four-four. The difference is two. I'm going to put a number of plus one, plus one counters on that creature equal to the difference. So I will be putting two plus one, plus one counters on it, meaning that my bear cub is now a six-six. Next turn, when Okinikahau attacks, my bear cub is base power 2-2, two, two, but its actual power is 6. That's a difference of 4. I'm going to put 4 counters on it. It's now now I got a 10-10 bear cub. It seems like a lot of work to put into, I don't know. It's it is, but it's, I, I think I think it'll a little... play a lot better than it reads. I hope so. And it doesn't read anywhere near as bad as that other one. No, it doesn't. Okay. No, it doesn't. And really. and this meaning of each, this meaning of each also means each like right in the sense <laughs> Very that clear. you're going to look at each creature that you've got with its power greater than that creature and this wording makes sense this use of the word each makes sense 
The other one didn't. That's good. I, I no longer feel as yeah. grim as I did a moment ago. So thank you for yeah. for explaining oh, that. Oh, Captain, my Captain. <laughs> Love that reference. Okay. So Throne of the Grim Captain for two is a legendary artifact. It has a tap ability for mill two cards. And then it also has craft. <laughs> Get this, folks. It's craft with a dinosaur a merfolk, a pirate, and a vampire, and four. And a partridge. And a pear pear tree, tree. right? Right? (laughs) I mean, there's just so much going on here. So for four colors of mana and exile this artifact, and you exile the four from among permanents you control and or cards on your graveyard. And what you get for all of this effort, because this is a lot of effort, right? This is a lot of of buildup. You get something called the Grim Captain. Uh, which is a legendary creature, skeleton, spirits, pirate. For some reason, it's not also a dinosaur and a merfolk, but you know we'll, we'll work that out in the wash. Uh, and it's a seven-seven, <laughs> and it's a it's it has menace, trample, lifelink, and hexproof. This is I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to Questing Beast, and it says whenever the Grim Captain attacks, each opponent sacrifices a non-land permanent. Then you may put an exiled creature card used to craft the Grim Captain onto the battlefield under your control, tapped and attacking. Wow. It's doing a lot here. So so let's talk about it for just a moment. Um, the dinosaur, merfolk, pirate, and vampire each need to be separate objects to fulfill the requirement. So you can't have a merfolk pirate or a dinosaur vampire or a pirate vampire and use that at, to fulfill two requirements. You'd have to have another individual. Uh, one changeling creature is not enough for all of it. You'd need four changeling creatures. So one changeling would be merfolk, one changeling would be dinosaur, whatever. Um, the cards brought back with the Grim Captain's attack trigger are tapped and attacking. They are not declared attackers for anything that would care about that. Uh, it can also attack any player, planeswalker, or battle on the battlefield when it comes in tapped and attacking. You just say, uh, this this merfolk is going to attack your battle. Um, I want to see somebody do this in limited. I just, I want to see it happen once. My, my entire season with this set will be complete if I see somebody pull it off. Because I think it's cool. I think it's going to be very hard to do. Um. It's it's probably probably more slanted towards commander, but I don't know. I haven't played the set yet, so maybe it's possible. Be really cool to see it done. Also, as a, as a reminder, things like changeling, uh, that ability does work in all zones. So if you exile a changeling, or sorry, not a, if you have a changeling creature in your graveyard, yeah, you can pull it. Okay. You can pull it for yeah. That makes sense. That's going to be, that counts as a, you know, four dinosaurs, three merfolk, two two pirates, and a vampire. That's really a changeling. Thank you for the effort. We really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I I tried. That was was worth it. the quality content that our Patreons come here for. So glad to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as, As you can tell, listeners, going through so many cards has made us all feel a little unstable. (laughs) <laughs> but thankfully, oh. we are on the final of our cards for tonight. We are going to... No, I want to just wander around a little bit and talk about some other stuff. You can, you can. We can talk Jurassic Park stuff if you want to. Yeah, we can just get into a big swirl can, can, of nonsense. Can, can you all just bridge to the end here? 
All right, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll read through <laughs> all the glyphs on this card, and we'll get this done. So Excellent. Unstable Glyph Bridge is an artifact for three white-white that reads, when Unstable Glyph Bridge enters the battlefield, if you cast it, for each player, choose a creature with power two or less that player controls. Then, destroy all creatures except creatures chosen this way. And then it has the lovely ability of craft with artifact for three white-white. And when you transform it, it will become Sand Swirl Wanderglyph, an artifact creature golem 5-3 with flying. And whenever an opponent casts a spell during their turn, they can't attack you or planeswalkers you control this turn. And each opponent who attacked you or a planeswalker you control this turn can't cast spells. So... Let's look at the front face of this card first, the Unstable Glyph Bridge. This card's first ability only cares if you cast it. It doesn't care from where, but most importantly, it will not trigger if it was just put onto the battlefield through some other means. You must choose a creature for each player, including yourself, as you are a player in the game. Now, when we go to the Sandsworld Wanderglyph side, the middle ability Whenever an opponent casts a spell during their turn, they can't attack you or planeswalkers you control this turn. When that ability resolves, the opponent won't be able to attack you or a planeswalker you control, even if Sandswirl Wanderglyph is no longer on the battlefield. So if they decide to cast a spell, bam, the triggered ability goes off. It resolves, and that spell was to kill your Sandswirl Wanderglyph. Doesn't matter. That ability still resolved, meaning they're not going to be able to attack you this turn. From there, the abilities only apply to attacking you or a planeswalker you control. That does mean that your opponent can still attack a battle which you protect without any consequence, and they can still attack said battle if they cast spells during the turn. So battles are not factored into this, only planeswalkers and you. And one reminder, since the pre-release is about to be upon us, that in a game of Two-Headed Giant, for each attacking creature, the attacking team announces which defending player, planeswalker, or battle that creature is attacking when it's declared as an attacker. Sandswirl only cares about creatures that are attacking you, not creatures attacking your teammate or their planeswalker friends. Only you and your planeswalker friends. And I think that's all we that's got it. for today. That's it. So it's almost over. It's almost over. Unless you almost want to talk over. Jurassic Park cards. Those are pretty cool. Um, <laughs> you, you know, we're making this joke here where it's like sponsor on, on Patreon to, to deal with this Jurassic Park stuff. And at the end of this episode, I, I don't even want to make that joke. Because then someone might be like, oh, yeah, let's give you money to make you talk more that's okay maybe they'll maybe they'll sponsor the charles and marcos after dark judge cast where we talk about all the commander cards and all the jurassic park cards yeah you know in in a way maybe that's an idea maybe at some point in time we do a year review of of cards that we don't do in the release notes episodes just so we can talk about them a little bit but i think by that point in time everybody knows what they are and they've already moved on to five new commander new new uh commanders so maybe not Yeah, that's true. Like, Something to we think have like about eight new commander decks to build every set now. Yeah, it's it's so hard to keep track of this stuff. 
that like this quite quite personally like commander is my format that's the format i play that's the i enjoy making decks for that kind of thing and they just put out so much commander like i'm just i don't want to talk about them i don't want to think about them not even sure you want to build them i'm just i'm just over yeah um, Commanders jumped the shark. It it has. Um, we did have a a little bit of a article that popped out that had a couple of updates that we just want to highlight. Uh, Totem armor mechanic is now being renamed to Umbra armor armor. So I guess it's getting errata. Is that correct? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. tri- tribal card type will now be known as Kindred card type. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, Naga subtype are now going to be Snake, and Rakshasha cards we'll remove the cat subtype from them because if you get deep into the lore of that mythos, um, cat is like the, one of the many things that it could possibly be. So, uh, cat's just going to be removed. It didn't make sense to be there. Uh, and we'll share the article in the show notes for that. I think it's pretty cool that they made these changes. I mean, it doesn't do a lot, but there's people who care about this a lot and want to make sure that, changes like this happen so I, I made i'm all the, for it yeah i made the language shift as much as possible to just call my goblin deck my goblin deck um i i mm-hmm. really understand the the difficulty that the word tribal presents for for people um i've just tried to be more aware I, every once in a while i slip and i i will revert and go back um but i it, it's a good it's a good change overall yeah Anything else for the good and welfare of, of uh, JudgeCast? Nah, that's another one in the books. So join us next week when we do another pre-release episode. Or release notes episode. <laughs> yeah. Woof. Yeah. Now that that, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> um, so, all right, that's our episode. Uh, join us next time when we talk about something exciting, maybe unless we don't and then that's on our booking agent which is probably me or maybe brian or maybe marcos i i don't know it's it's somebody's fault maybe one of us it's somebody's fault maybe it's one somebody. of us we'll play we'll blame cj shh don't tell him yes uh, <laughs> he's like nine episodes behind I, he won't know. he won't know uh until then <laughs> you can send us an email at judgecast at gmail.com or like us on facebook or follow us on Twitter at JudgeCast and on BlueSky at JudgeCast.BSky.Social. And check us out on any of our other social media for invite links to our Discord server for judges new and old, fans, and anyone who supports the judging community. I'm Charles Feather, and I keep it fair. I'm Marcos Sanchez, and I keep it fun. I'm Brian Prillman, and I'm eager or quick to argue, quarrel, or fight. <laughs> <laughs>